Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So in our episode on Knicks versus Hedden, we mentioned that there was an intense rivalry between Noah Webster and Joseph Emerson Worcester and their dictionaries, which came to be known as the Dictionary Wars. I don't remember if I described it exactly as a rivalry in that episode. If I did, I kind of wish that wasn't the word that I had chosen because now having researched it more, I don't think that's the best descriptor. I said there might be a future episode on it, though, and here it is. Uh, This grew into a two-parter, and it's kind of tangled because Worcester and Webster, they each had their own lives. The Dictionary Wars went on long after Webster's death, uh, whether Worcester wanted them to or not. So in this, what I decided to do, rather than trying to to lay out this whole thing strictly in chronological order, uh, we're going to have part one, today's episode, more about these two men's biographies, and then part two is more detail about these, these dictionary wars. And as a note up front, uh, a whole lot of the writing about the dictionary wars differentiates among all these different editions of the dictionaries in question, mainly by talking about the formats they were printed in, using terms like octavo and quarto. So if you're not familiar with that terminology, it comes from how books were printed. So in a folio, there would be one piece of paper folded in half. That would create four total pages of a book. And then in a quarto, the paper was folded twice made eight pages, and then in octavo, three folds made 16 pages, and then it just goes on from there. And in terms of the height of the finished books, the folios are the tallest. Each successive size is smaller than the last one, so like the folios are big, hefty books, and a quarto would be like much smaller. This is a totally reasonable way to talk about these books. They were advertised that way at the time, 
To some extent, these words are still around. I think they come up most often talking about things like Shakespeare's first folio and things like that. But this is just not how books are printed anymore. In the context of an audio podcast, it seems a little unwieldy, especially since we know a lot of people listen to podcasts while they're doing something else. So I'm sort of imagining somebody in the middle of doing their dishes and going, wait, which one was the quarto? What is a quarto again? So if you're really familiar with all this or it's connected to your field in this in some way and you're listening and you're like, why aren't they just calling this the quarto? That's why. <laughs> so because he was the older of the two men and he started publishing first, we're going to start with Noah Webster Jr. He has also gotten significantly more attention from historians and biographers than Worcester has, so his part of today's episode is going to be longer than Worcester's. Webster was born on October 16, 1758, in the West Division of Hartford, Connecticut. That's now just West Hartford. His parents were Noah Webster Sr. and Mercy Steele Webster, and he was one of their five children. When Webster started studying at Yale College, it only had about 150 students and two professors. He took a brief break from studying there to fight in the Revolutionary War, and then he graduated in 1778. He wanted to study law, but his family really couldn't afford to send him to law school, so he became a teacher and studied law on his own. He was admitted to the bar in 1781, but Turned out he couldn't really make enough money as a lawyer, so he turned his attention to something that he thought was sorely needed, and that was school books for children that were written in the United States by an American rather than being imported from Britain. This was during a time when there was a lot of debate in the United States about language and literature. Some people, including Thomas Jefferson, thought that as an independent nation, the United States should be freed from the linguistic and literary expectations of British English and should have a language and a literary canon of its own. A lot of other prominent figures thought the same, although this was not at all universal. There were also people who thought North American slang and pronunciations were vulgar and were not only ruining the English language, but were also reinforcing stereotypes of Americans as coarse and ignorant. And the battle continues today. (laughs) It never, ever ended. Uh, For Webster and for others, this wasn't just about creating a national identity for the United States. It was also connected to the idea that a democracy could only flourish if its citizens were educated. And that education required high-quality textbooks that did not, for example, include a bunch of stuff about loyalty to the crown, which was common in a lot of the imported textbooks. In Webster's words, quote, I have too much pride not to wish to see America assume a national character. I have too much pride to stand indebted to Great Britain for books to teach our children the alphabet. Webster's first foray into all this was the American Spelling Book. That was in 1783, the same year that the Revolutionary War ended. He was inspired by A New Guide to the English Tongue in Five Parts by English cleric Thomas Dilworth, which was widely used in the United States, even though it was clearly written for British children and had some odd pronunciation rules. Webster used this book as his starting point, adapting it for American use. And at some point afterward, someone writing under the name Dilworth's Ghosts accused him of plagiarizing it. In 1784, Webster published a grammar and then a reader in 1785. 
Together with the speller, they formed a grammatical institute of the English language, comprising an easy, concise, and systematic method of education designed for the use of English schools in America. I didn't read out the commas, but they're kind of sprinkled through there. (laughs) Just a casual (laughs) comma. Do we need another? (laughs) Yes. Some of them seem extraneous. This became an immensely popular work and was widely used until about 1900, selling roughly 70 million copies. In addition to writing books that he hoped would prepare children to be an active part of a healthy democracy, Webster was writing about democracy itself. His 1785 Sketches of American Policy advocated for, among other things, a constitution that would end slavery and institute a universal education program. Webster was very politically active and was a big part of trying to establish a culture in the early United States, and he was well-connected to people like George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and Benjamin Franklin, so he is sometimes described as a forgotten founder. As soon as his first speller was published, Webster also started advocating for copyright laws. This was absolutely about protecting his own interests. It wasn't really motivated by having wider questions about copyright law and what should be protected. At this point, the basis of the U.S. government was the Articles of Confederation, which did not allow for the federal government to pass a national copyright law the Continental Congress had recommended that the states each pass their own law. So Webster traveled state to state and wrote to legislators in states that he could not personally visit. After the U.S. Constitution was ratified, taking effect in 1789, Webster also lobbied for a federal copyright law, the first of which was passed in 1790. So In addition to being described as a forgotten founder, Webster is sometimes also called the father of American copyright law. As he was working on that, in 1787, Webster founded American Magazine in New York City. And then in 1789, when he was 31 and she was 23, he got married to Rebecca Greenleaf. At first, she turned down his proposal, but he wrote her a letter and sent it along with a lock of his hair, saying, quote, "'Without you, the world is all alike to me, and with you, any part will be agreeable. As a pledge of my sincerity, accept a lock of hair and keep it no longer than I deserve to be remembered. You must go, and I must be separated from all that is dear to me, but you will be attended by guardian angels and the best wishes of your sincere and respectful admirer. They eventually had six daughters and one son together, along with another son who died while he was still a baby. So I think that letter is pretty sweet and romantic, definitely intended to be so, but Uh, Webster did not have a professional reputation as a sweetheart. He was described as extremely opinionated, combative, hard to get along with, and rude. He also had some controversial opinions. We'll be getting to some of them. And that, those opinions combined with his demeanor to earn him a lot of detractors. He was also fond of publishing anonymous pieces that either praised his own work or attacked his critics. A little later in his life, he also had an intense religious experience and became a devout Calvinist and a born-again Christian. And then after that, a lot of people found his work to be excessively moralizing and his opinions to be increasingly conservative. Beyond that, 
he also experienced depression and anxiety for a lot of his life, and he referenced that often in his journals. The same year he married Rebecca Greenleaf, Webster wrote dissertations on the English language, with notes, historical and critical, to which is added by way of appendix, an essay on a reformed mode of spelling, with Dr. Franklin's arguments on that subject. Similar to earlier, a lot of uh, just kind of commas floating through there. (laughs) It was dedicated to Benjamin Franklin, and in it he argued for American English to be separated from the English of Britain. This included calling for reforms to how English was spelled. This said in part, quote, Now is the time, and this is the country in which we may expect success in attempting changes to language, science, and government. Delay in the plan here proposed may be fatal. Under a tranquil general government, the minds of men may again sink into indolence, and national acquiescence in error will follow, and posterity be doomed to struggle with difficulties, which time and accident will perpetually multiply. Let us then seize the present moment and establish a national language as well as a national government. Along with other changes, Webster argued that all superfluous or silent letters should be omitted, so that, for example, the word bread, meaning the food, would be spelled just B-R-E-D. Get rid of that extra A, and the word give would have no silent E on the end. Letters that had indefinite sounds should also be replaced, so grief would become G-R-E-E-F. Daughter would become D-A-W-T-E-R, and chorus would become K-O-R-U-S, like a whole phonetic situation. Yeah. In 1790, Webster published a collection of essays and fugitive writings by Noah Webster. This was written using his proposed spelling reforms, so in that title, fugitive does not have an E on the end. This book was, quote, designed to aid the principles of the revolution, to suppress political discord, and to diffuse a spirit of inquiry favorable to morals, science, and truth. The preface begins, quote, The following collection consists of essays and fugitive pieces written at various times and on different occasions, as will appear by their dates and subjects. So fugitive repeats that spelling that Tracy just mentioned. Pieces is P-E-E-C-E-S. Written doesn't have its initial W. As is spelled with a Z instead of an S. Will has only one L. And appear is spelled A-P-P-E-E-R. Although I would make the case there's an extra P there by his rules. (laughs) Now I'm like, did I accidentally? No, I copied and pasted that. So I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure that second P was really there. Uh... The whole thing is like that. Um, There's a lot about English spelling that really does not make sense. And this document did mostly spell words according to how they sound. But it will probably come as no surprise that a whole lot of people really made fun of this book and Webster lost a lot of money on it. So we're going to talk about some of his less laughable but still controversial work after a sponsor break. 
I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. Say goodbye to complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping and say hello to an advantage with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Every business faces challenges, but shipping shouldn't be one of them. So keep things simple with clear, upfront pricing. And no unexpected surcharges for Saturday deliveries, residential deliveries, or fuel. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there, helping you counter the rising costs of doing business with a budget-friendly alternative. And keep things reliable with on-time ground shipping, ensuring your shipments get to where they need to go while maintaining your hard-earned reputation. USPS Ground Advantage is your ticket to easy, cost-effective, and dependable shipping. It's the complete delivery service your business needs to rise above the competition. There's never been a better time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. In 1793, Noah Webster founded two Federalist newspapers, the American Minerva and the Herald. He sold them both in 1803. Before that, 1795, he published a call for physicians to send him all of their thoughts on yellow fever. That's a disease that had caused a horrific epidemic in Philadelphia two years before and had also caused major outbreaks in other cities as well. 
Perhaps because he had already established a name for himself as a cantankerous man with weird opinions about spelling, he got a lot of criticism from the medical establishment for basically being a dilettante who was sticking his nose into stuff that he could not possibly understand. He did not give up, though, and in 1796 published a collection of papers on the subject of bilious fevers, which was essentially a compendium of everything that was known or believed about yellow fever at the time. This was followed by the 1799 A Brief History of Epidemic and Pestilential Diseases with the Principal Phenomena of the Physical World which Precede and Accompany Them and Observations Deduced from the Facts Stated in Two Volumes Totaling Roughly 700 Pages. All of those spelled the way we would anticipate. Yes. However, it does say that it's a brief work when it's 700 pages spread across two volumes. Lies were told. Uh, this became a standard medical text, basically a chronological resource detailing as many epidemics and disease outbreaks as Webster could find information on. Yeah, I mean, both of these had genuine value. We're talking about a time when there is no Google. Everyone does not have access to a medical library nearby. It was like everything that was known in one place that people could have on hand. Uh, none of Webster's efforts were particularly lucrative, though, except the speller. The speller did pretty well. He had a pretty big family, and that meant that their living expenses were high. So the Websters moved from place to place as they just tried to make ends meet. For a time, they lived in Amherst, where Webster helped found Amherst Academy and Amherst College, in 1798, they moved to New Haven, Connecticut, where they got a good deal on a house because it had previously belonged to Benedict Arnold. In 1800, Noah Webster Jr. announced his plan to write a dictionary, specifically an American dictionary. He wanted it to follow the spelling reforms he advocated and include words that had been added to the English language in the United States. Its quotations and examples would come from American sources, not British ones. Naturally, he got a lot of criticism for this for all of the reasons that we have already discussed. Yeah, there were certainly people who thought, yes, we need an American dictionary. But a lot of people who thought that Noah Webster should not be the person to do it. Uh, a lot of people today write about Webster as having been a huge part of creating a national identity for the United States through this and other dictionaries and his other writing and other activities, he repeatedly wrote about how creating a common national language would, in his opinion, form the foundation of a national unity. And his selections of American works for quotations and examples in these dictionaries, like that was reinforcing the, the idea that the United States had its own literary canon, and that canon had value, the U.S. did not need to just rely on works from Britain. But there's another way to look at this as well. In a 2014 essay in William & Mary Quarterly, Dr. Tim Cassidy frames this as more about Webster uniting people in their hatred of him. Quote, Webster did indeed play a role in forging American national sentiment, but not because his ideas were popular, representative, or accepted rather by holding or seeming to hold very unpopular positions about American language, Webster unintentionally catalyzed a large media phenomenon in which other writers hastened to counter his ideas with their own. Yeah, there were there were a lot a lot of other 
<laughs> school books and dictionaries and, and things like that during this era. He was not at all the only one. So Webster published his Compendious Dictionary of the English Language in 1806. This was not the first English dictionary written or published in the United States, and it also was not the first dictionary to include words that had been coined in North America. But this 1806 dictionary is often described as the first fairly comprehensive dictionary of American English. It contained more than 40,000 words, Webster did include some spelling changes, but these changes really were not as radical as his essays and fugitive writings had shown that he'd earlier called for. A few words do stand out, though, such as women, spelled W-I-M-M-I-N. He insisted this was the, quote, primitive and correct orthography. He also claimed to have added 5,000 new words of American origin, although this included things like proper names and adjective forms of words that had only been defined as nouns in British dictionaries. Many of the new words he included had roots in Algonquian languages, including skunk, moose, moccasin, and squash. There were words that came from European languages as well, including chowder, which likely came from French via the maritime provinces of Canada and New England, cookie, which came from Dutch, and cafeteria, which came from Spanish via Mexico. Although this is recognized as a noteworthy book, it was met with a lot of criticism. It was not reviewed particularly well. Eventually, Lyman Cobb, a young schoolteacher from New York, became one of Webster's most vocal critics, not just about this dictionary, but about his other work as well. Cobb started publishing his own competing spellers and dictionaries and other resources in part because he thought Webster's were so bad. Cobb's first speller came out in 1821 when he was only 21, and a revised version followed four years later. He also started publishing criticisms of Webster in newspapers in 1827, and in 1831, he collected all these many, many pieces into a critical review of the orthography of Dr. Webster's series of books. Among other things, Cobb pointed out that there were a lot of discrepancies and inconsistencies among Webster's various books. Like, different spellers or editions of the dictionary contained different spellings for the same words, or a word might be spelled one way in its own entry in the dictionary, but then spelled differently when it was used in definitions of other words. Webster spent a lot of time publishing rebuttals of Cobb's criticisms. As this was happening, Webster was also working on another bigger dictionary. He finished it in January of 1825 after defining zymome or zynone as, quote, one of the constituents of gluten. On finishing this dictionary, he wrote, quote, when I had come to the last word, I was seized with a trembling, which made it somewhat difficult to hold my pen steady for writing. This cause seems to have been the thought that I might not then live to finish the work or the thought that I was so near the end of my labors. But I summoned strength to finish the last word and then walking about the room a few minutes, I recovered. It took three years to get this new dictionary into print and the process was laborious. At first, Webster couldn't find a publisher, and eventually his son-in-law, Professor Chauncey Goodrich of Yale College, connected him to Sherman Converse. 
Converse and Goodrich wanted to address some of the same inconsistencies and errors that had already been pointed out with Webster's work, so James Gates Percival was hired as editor. Percival was very conscientious and detail-oriented, but Webster disagreed with a lot of his proposed edits, describing them as pedantry. Eventually, Webster got so fed up that he fired Percival with part of the dictionary still unedited. This dictionary, titled American Dictionary of the English Language, came out in 1828 and contained more than 65,000 words. It also contained etymologies, as well as usage examples that came from the writing of people like George Washington and Washington Irving, as well as the Christian Bible, rather than using lots of British literature. A lot of sources say Webster learned 26 languages to research the etymologies in this dictionary. This included brushing up on languages that he already knew, like Greek, Latin, Hebrew, French, and German, as well as getting some familiarity with other languages from Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. But he wasn't exactly using all this study to accurately research the origin of each word. He was trying to prove that the biblical story of the Tower of Babel was true, and that all of humanity had originally spoken the same language. In the words of Scribner's Dictionary of American History, 3rd edition, quote, this etymology won almost no acceptance at the time and remains universally discredited. After publishing this dictionary, Webster renewed his call for a broader, stronger federal copyright law under the 1790 Copyright Act that he had advocated for. Copyright protection lasted for 14 years, which he did not think was very long. It also expired if the author died before the end of that time. Webster was 70, so he had reason to be concerned that if he died, his family might lose control over his work and then might also lose any income they could have earned from it after his death. There were also some loopholes that didn't protect American authors from pirated versions of their work that were published in Britain. As this dictionary was being prepared for printing, Goodrich and Converse looked for someone to create an abridged version, something that would be smaller, less expensive, and even more mainstream. Webster didn't really have the time or energy to do this himself, and he had started working on another project. This was a version of the Bible with reformed spelling and with anything that Webster thought was dirty taken out. So Converse just hired someone else to do it, and that person was Joseph Emerson Worcester. Worcester already had an excellent reputation as a lexicographer and a researcher. He had previously abridged Samuel Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language, which was first published in 1755 and was still one of the most widely used and respected English dictionaries. Based on his reputation and his experience, Worcester seemed like the right person for the job, but he was also pretty reluctant to take it on because he was already working on a dictionary of his own. Eventually, Worcester took the job, and his abridged version of Webster's Dictionary came out in 1829. Webster himself was outraged. Converse and Goodrich had basically cut him out of all the planning and decision-making about this abridgment. Probably on purpose, because they knew he would disagree with a lot of their decisions. Webster was so upset that he decided to sell the rights to the abridged version. Goodrich, who was married to Webster's daughter Julia, talked him into selling the rights to him, arguing that the book should at least stay in the family. 
Worcester later published that dictionary he'd been working on, the one that had made him reluctant to work on Webster's abridgment. And eventually, Webster accused him of plagiarism in that dictionary. We will be talking more about that next episode. After this dispute with Worcester, Webster seems to have become increasingly angry and unwell, more like an ongoing series of illnesses and discomforts, not really any particular major illness. He kept trying to promote his books, attack the work of his competitors, and argue against the influence of British dictionaries and literature on American English. Webster's family also became increasingly divided for reasons connected to his work. Late in his life, he assigned the copyright for his speller to his son, William, to the horror of his daughters and sons-in-law. William had tried his hand at a bunch of different business ventures that never worked out, and he was continually being bailed out by his father. The speller was the most profitable book that Webster ever published, so the family was worried that William was going to squander away income that they were all relying on. Divisions also arose around how Goodrich had handled the abridgment and the plagiarism dispute with Worcester. Some of the family kind of felt like he had taken advantage of Webster in his old age. In 1841, Webster published another version of his dictionary. This one was an American Dictionary of the English Language Corrected and Enlarged. He died in New Haven, Connecticut two years later on May 28, 1843, reportedly holding a copy of his speller on his deathbed. He was buried in Grove Street Cemetery in New Haven, Connecticut. Today, Webster's Dictionary is under the name Merriam-Webster. We're going to talk a lot more about George and Charles Merriam in part two. They opened a printing and bookselling business in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1831, later buying unfinished copies of one of Webster's dictionaries and eventually the rights to his work. G&C Merriam Company became a subsidiary of Encyclopedia Britannica in 1964, and that subsidiary was renamed Merriam-Webster Incorporated in 1982. After we come back from a sponsor break, we will talk about Joseph Emerson Worcester. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. 
Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Say goodbye to complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping, and say hello to an advantage with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Every business faces challenges, but shipping shouldn't be one of them. So keep things simple with clear, upfront pricing. And no unexpected surcharges for Saturday deliveries, residential deliveries, or fuel. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there, helping you counter the rising costs of doing business with a budget-friendly alternative. And keep things reliable with on-time ground shipping, ensuring your shipments get to where they need to go while maintaining your hard-earned reputation. USPS Ground Advantage is your ticket to easy, cost-effective, and dependable shipping. It's the complete delivery service your business needs to rise above the competition. There's never been a better time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Joseph Emerson Worcester was one of 15 children born to Jesse and Sarah Parker Worcester. He was born in Bedford, New Hampshire on August 24, 1784. The Worcesters were a farming family, and for a lot of his young life, Joseph worked on the farm. He didn't have access to a lot of, like, really good education, so he did a lot of study on his own. Joseph was 21 when he entered preparatory school at Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts, and he went on to Yale College in New Haven, Connecticut four years later. He graduated from Yale in 1811, the year he turned 27. In spite of the limits on their access to education, nearly all of the Worcester siblings became teachers. For Joseph, this started in Salem, Massachusetts, possibly because he had some family there. One of his students was Nathaniel Hawthorne, and he became Hawthorne's tutor after he had to leave school to recover from an injury. Worcester was described as shy and methodical and as patient and kind with his students, but he also had very high standards, and he really loved doing research. Thomas Wentworth Higginson described him as, quote, want to sit silent, literally by the hour, a slumbering volcano of facts and statistics while others talked. In addition to his work as a teacher, Worcester also started writing books to use in schools. 
His A Geographical Dictionary, or Universal Gazetteer, Ancient and Modern, was published in 1817, followed by A Gazetteer of the United States in 1818. His Elements of Geography came out in 1819, and then Sketches of the Earth and Its Inhabitants in 1823. That same year, he became a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Then three years later, so 1826, he published Elements of History, Ancient and Modern, accompanied by an historical atlas, and then Outlines of Scripture Geography with an atlas. During these years, Worcester also moved a couple of times, from Salem to Andover and then to Cambridge, Massachusetts. Having written six books on a range of subjects over the course of a decade, including issuing revised editions that we did not mention here, Worcester turned his attention to lexicography, or the compilation of dictionaries and the principles and practices involved with that compilation. As we mentioned earlier, he published an abridgment of Samuel Johnson's 1755 dictionary. He did that in 1828. And then a year later, he was hired to create an abridged version of Webster's 1828 American Dictionary of the English Language. That abridgment came out in 1829. Worcester put out his own comprehensive pronouncing and explanatory dictionary of the English language in 1830. This contained roughly the same number of words as Webster's unabridged 1828 dictionary, but as a book, it was shorter. It did not contain etymologies, and his definitions tended to be a lot more concise. That meant his dictionary was also less expensive than Webster's. He also included what came to be known as the compromise vowel, a sound in words like fast and dance that was between the way A is pronounced in cat or hat and the way it's pronounced in father. After publishing this dictionary, Worcester went to Europe for several months and collected resource materials on philology and lexicography. He got back to the U.S. in 1831 and started working as editor for the American Almanac and Repository of Useful Knowledge. This was an annual almanac that Worcester edited until 1842. In 1834, Webster accused Worcester of plagiarism, claiming that Worcester had used material from his abridgment of Webster's Dictionary in his own work. This was the start of the Dictionary Wars that we're going to talk about in Part 2, but we'll go ahead and note that Webster directed various people to comb through Worcester's work, looking for evidence against him, but they found nothing. In 1835, Worcester published his Elementary Dictionary of the English Language that was shorter and simpler than his comprehensive pronouncing and explanatory dictionary, and it was meant to be used in common schools. Like Worcester's previous dictionary, this was well-reviewed and it sold well, and he was able to move into a large set of rented rooms in Cambridge, where one of his neighbors was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I don't know if I ever want to do a Henry Wadsworth Longfellow episode, but he sure has come up a lot lately. He is like connective glue of American history, I think. On November 28, 1841, Worcester married Amy Elizabeth McKean. He was 57 and she was 40. He bought land and a house next to the one where he had rented rooms. Amy's father was a professor at Harvard and she worked with Joseph on his future writings. In 1846, Joseph Worcester published his Universal and Critical Dictionary of the English Language. At this point, Nora Webster was dead. He had died three years previously. 
And Worcester's preface to this dictionary included a note that none of its spellings or definitions had come from Webster. He also, in that material, cited Webster as one of his sources for pronunciations alongside British sources, like Webster is cited in the text of the dictionary. And he praised Webster as a, quote, distinguished American lexicographer. As this dictionary was going to print, Worcester was having trouble with his sight. Sometimes this is described as resulting from cataracts. He had a series of surgeries, after which he was blind in his right eye and had partial sight in his left. During his surgeries and recovery, he was really not paying attention to what was going on in the news. So some years passed before he learned that a huge controversy had unfolded in the press, including a scathing review of his work, apparently written at the behest of Webster's publishers. Worcester also discovered that a publisher in London had put out an edition of his own Universal and Critical Dictionary of the English Language that said on its title page that it was compiled from work by Noah Webster. It was not. This was Worcester's own dictionary. Uh, This fueled additional speculation that Worcester's work was suspect in some way, even though he had never personally had any contact with this London publisher and just had nothing to do with this publisher's, frankly, inexplicable actions. This is also something we're going to be talking about a lot more on Wednesday, but Worcester found all of this just enormously upsetting. In 1855, Worcester published a pronouncing, explanatory, and synonymous dictionary of the English language. As its name suggests, this one included synonyms, and it also included etymologies. Then in 1860, he published a four-volume dictionary of the English language. Joseph Emerson Worcester died in Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 27, 1865. At that point, he had been working on annotations for a future version of that four-volume dictionary. He was buried in Mount Auburn Cemetery, which is also in Cambridge. Today, Noah Webster's name is almost synonymous with the word dictionary, while people may not have heard of Joseph Emerson Worcester at all. But during his lifetime, Worcester's dictionaries were really well-respected. Sometimes he's described as wanting to preserve British pronunciations and usage, but that's only somewhat true. He did use British sources in his work, but he used American ones as well, and he defaulted to British standards when there just wasn't really a clear consensus. While Webster had been calling for spelling reform and a replacement of British sources with American ones, and including words coined in the U.S. that had not become widely used, Worcester had been carefully creating well-researched dictionaries that focused on clarity and accuracy and, quote, the prevailing and best usage of this country. Consequently, there were a lot of institutions that preferred Worcester's dictionaries, including Harvard and the University of Virginia, And he had a lot of support among some very outspoken writers and speakers. One was Oliver Wendell Holmes, who said at one point, quote, Mr. Worcester's Dictionary, on which, as is well known, the literary men of this metropolis are by special statute allowed to be sworn in place of the Bible. I think that's a joke, but I still like it. Uh, author and minister Edward Everett Hale also remarked that the only two books that would be needed to establish a new civilization would be Shakespeare and Worcester's 1860 Dictionary. So it makes sense that Webster and later Charles and George Merriam 
had seen Worcester and his work as a threat. And that was a big part of the Dictionary Wars. And we're going to talk all about that next time. Yeah, I know it's a little weird to kind of have two parts, two different biographies, and then a selection of their work. But it also would have been weird to, like, try to interweave it together. And that way, I feel like, would have been confusing. Yeah, I think it makes perfect sense. Thank you. Uh, I have some listener mail. It is from Caitlin. The title of this email is John Nix and His Four Sons. And Caitlin wrote, Hi, Tracy and Holly. One detail of Wednesday's Nix versus Hedden episode caught in my brain immediately. John Nix's four sons and their shared middle initial of W. I had to know if they shared the same name. I started digging into genealogical records and found John Jr. in a notable New Yorker's 1896 to 1899 listed with the middle name William. John Sr. died in 1895. Very helpful to avoid generational confusion there. John was the only Nix in that edition, though. Onward went the quest. An article in Brooklyn Life from the 17th anniversary of the company notes, quote, a rather singular fact relating to the four men who constitute the firm is that the middle initial of each is W, which I find hilarious, worth commenting on, but not worth saying what it initializes. Using John Sr.'s death year, I found an obituary that mentioned his birth year, which was enough information to find someone on Ancestry who had traced that branch of the family tree. So, John William, George Washington, Frank Wesley, and Robert Williamson. There seem to be several other siblings, including a brother, Harry W., between George and Frank in age. Harry disappears between the 1870 and 1880 censuses, and there's a burial record for someone of that name and birth year for 1873. So, not only is each W. a different name, but not a single Willard in the bunch, unless maybe Harry. An answer to a question that has zero impact to the story being told, but which was satisfying to hunt down anyway, Caitlin. Okay, thank you, Caitlin, so much. This is literally the exact kind of rabbit hole I will go down and have been known to go down in the course of researching this show, but it was not a rabbit hole I had time for this time. <laughs> yeah, it was it was an episode that was like, get it going. Got get a move on. <laughs> Stop wasting time. Uh, so thank you so much, Caitlin, for doing that and uh allowing me the pleasure of following following along with that uh with that journey. I think. Uh, I think they've written to us before. Uh, I'm pretty sure Caitlin's name is is jumping out to me as familiar. So thank you so much, Caitlin. Thank you for this email. Thank you for doing all of that digging. Um, uh, maybe at some point I will find some other weird question that I actually do have time to jump down a rabbit hole about. If you would like to send us a note about this or any other podcast or history podcast at iHeartRadio.com or on social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to the show on the iHeartRadio app and wherever else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.